Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. The Poker Zoo. Welcome back once again to Poker Podcasting Excellence, brought to you by Persuadio. We are at persuadio.nl, or just do a Google search for the Poker Zoo, or Poker Zoo should come up there, number one, number two, somewhere at the top. Thank you for your support. Our zoo hotline is 410-775-6224, 410-775-6224. We would love to hear from you, comments or questions you have for Persuadio or about the show. This week's interview is with Greg Candido, who just came off some recent success at WSOP. So enjoy some tournament discussion. Well, welcome back to the Poker Zoo. I have a guest today who is not a cash game specialist like many of us in the TBR community, but a real tournament player and someone who has just come off uh, an extraordinary run at the main event. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Greg Candido. Thank you, Chris. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. You must be feeling well. I mean, I'm, you you are always happy when I meet you. You bought me <laughs> breakfast once. Uh, are you ever in a bad mood? No, I mean, I'm pretty even keel. I mean, uh, I, poker is my passion. So and anytime I'm playing poker, it's a good day for me, no matter how difficult that day might be. So, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a pretty good lucky guy. I'm a lucky guy. Nope. And you're about to go down to the Borgata and play more. Yeah, I can't get enough. So I just got back uh, a little less than a week ago, and I'm going to go down right after this poly conference. I'm going to head down to Borgata and play some Borgata series tournaments. Perfect. That's a nice place to play. It's where I met Greg. Um, Greg was briefly a member of the forums before I unceremoniously kicked him out, which is completely uh, disgraceful of me, but you know we have rules about being uh, being active in there, and we'll always welcome him back if he wants to post more. Yeah, that's but, my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things, and we'll get into this, is that you have a busy poker community of your own to tend to, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll we'll get to that too. But but tell us about yourself. Uh, who are you? You know, where do you live besides the Borgata, and how did you get into poker? Okay, well, I mean, we had to go all the way back to two thousand and three. I really got inspired by the Chris Moneymaker era. I remember, you know, watching on ESPN and watching this unknown accountant from Tennessee play in the main event, win the tournament for millions of dollars. And I'm sitting on my couch. I'm like, man, I could do that. Or, you know, I'm critiquing the hands with like no poker history. So um, what I started to do was I said, you know, I want to start playing a little bit more. So I would get a bunch of friends. And then uh, we would have a small little sit and go or tournament together. And then, you know, what we started out as six players, then started to turn to 12 players. And then I started having a little poker community. So in the poker community, they call me Tuna. So I actually have a poker league called Ugly Tuna. And a lot of people, I get a lot of answers like, you know, uh, how did you come up with the name? And the na I really didn't come up with anything special. I just wanted something that was memorable. So because I had my poker community called Ugly Tuna, I hence everybody started calling me Tuna. So generally, you know, at least on the East Coast, if you say, you know, Tuna, they probably know who I am in, in, in that regards. So now my ugly poker tuner over the years have just kept on growing and growing. And I would, you know, run, you know, home games. And now I have like 500 people in a community where I have on Facebook a social media uh, get together. And these are guys that I play with on a tournament on a regular basis that I really root support them. 
So if they go down to Borgata or if they go out to the World Series or any tournament they do and they have success, I like to post it to the community and give all the praise and props to them. So this is I'm kind of like was a fanboy first. And then I would say, you know, around 2011, I was playing. I came up really through the online ranks, full tilt poker, uh, poker stars and playing small stakes, you know, twenty dollars, uh, sit and goes, MTTs was doing good success. I wouldn't necessarily that I'm nowhere near the poker player I was then. And then online poker went away. So then I started getting a little bit more live, started showing up more at Brigada. And then I had a couple, I had one person that really changed my life. He said, you know, hey, I want you to go down and play Brigada. There's a $2,500 event. I want to put you in there. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how comfortable I was, but I didn't pass <laughs> up the opportunity. And I wound up min cashing in the tournament. And that really what took off. And I said, you know, I really want to get better at this game. And I really put a lot of off time work now. I would say really in the last... Since 2013, I really do my studying, going out, reading books, going online, discussing hand histories with a small group about poker and really getting better. I have a couple of guys who are inspirations to me who played the game that I was able to bounce off hand histories and really learn from them. And really just playing a lot. I play a ton. I play six days a week. So I'm not a professional poker player. I don't claim to be a professional poker player, but I'm very confident in my poker game. I've had some good success. I never won a big tournament, but you know, even these professionals I see down and going to Brigada, you know, they're playing, they're playing hundreds of tournaments and you know, they banking a tournament every now and then for the little amount of success that I've had, I've really gone far in tournaments and I've played with a lot of good poker players and had my own success, which made me confident. And, you know, I've, play in a local poker club where I discuss people. I love teaching the game to other people and helping them out, which makes me become a better player and really going out and just trying to get better. I never get complacent. I always want to get better. And that's pretty much where I am today. And really over the last two or three years, my game has really come together a little bit. And um, I'm kind of proud where I am. And, you know, I'm also in a game where I've gone through people I played with hundreds of different people and I've seen players come and go. And one thing's been con- constant that I'm still here. I mean, I have never left and I still play. I still have the same passion for the game and hopefully I keep going forward and never get complacent. Absolutely. So there's a lot to dig into there, mm-hmm. even before we get to your main event run. Uh, let's talk just a little bit about this extraordinary community that you have. I mean, you're more than just an organizer with 500 people. You're sort of a, a poker maestro. I mean, what does that involve? Where does it involve and how do people get involved if they want to? Well, I mean, what I was, what I used to do, I would say back in the day, I started running home games at my father's house. My father has a bit, had a big basement and we would have 40, 50. One time we had 90 people in this basement. So I'll give you an idea how big this basement was. And, you know, I was, I just wanted, and we would host these games four day. I used to host these games four times a year. And, Always was passionate and looking for it. So I just kind of grew it. I was, I would play, I would say, Hey, you know, why don't you come play my game? You know, we have this little hundred dollar, uh, tournament. You want to get in here and really just got by word of mouth and my community came together. So, you know, as they come in, come today, people will come up and say, Hey, you know, I, I want to get, be a part of your league. And my league is really just North of Manhattan in New York city. I live in New York and, um, still I welcome players. Uh, fortunately I don't do it as often anymore because I'm more about playing than running a tournament. 
And if you ever been to one of my events, I mean, I go the full nine yards. Anything you know about me, I always go 100%. So I went out, bought all high-quality poker tables. These are not tables that do fold up. I even have one that I built that has lights, a raised rail. I have lights, TV, poker clocks. I mean, if you ever go to uh, if you go to my website, uglytuna.net, you can look at some of the photos of some of the events I've had. And this thing really just kind of grew and grew and grew. But unfortunately today, I only do it once a year. It's usually typically in November where I would have one event and I'll probably get 100 players to play. You know, we just just really to have a good time, have fun and, you know, speak to the community. Unfortunately, I don't do it as much because I really try to concentrate more playing about the poker side than being a tournament director. But when I was a tournament director, I tried to be the best. I mean, I knew all the rules. I knew how to move the players, move the tables. I had high quality chips. I would have my own custom chips. I mean, everything was done 110%. And I think that's what people appreciated. And I think in my community, I have very high integrity. People trust me. I run a good game. Um, and really, my reputation, it means everything to me, at least in my community and amongst my poker friends and poker family. So you're very nuanced in in poker rules and poker structures. How, what, is, what is your opinion of how, say, the Borgata series is run, how the WSOP series are run? Um, what, what, can you comment on that as someone who knows these things very well? Well, as a poker player, I mean, I've even taught and coached a couple of people. And I said, you know, game selection is the probably number one thing you can do to get better in these games. If you're playing in a bad game, you're not going to really win. So structures to me are very important. Like if I look at a structure, I want to like see how many chips I have and, you know, what kind of uh, blind structure they have. And it's definitely important because like if you look at Borgata, you know, a typical tournament might be, you know, like uh, I don't know to say the almighty sack, but, you know, you might get like 25,000 chips, 30 minute levels which is, for me, that's like the bare minimum. I really don't like playing anything smaller. Foxwoods tends to have some tournaments that are super fast, and that really doesn't suit my style. I'm a very patient poker player. So the longer the structure for me, that's what I try to play. Now, I get it. Some people like playing turbo structures and want to finish in one day. I'd rather play something like three days. Uh, One of my favorite venues locally over here is Parks Casino, where for a $300 tournament, you can play 45-minute levels. You get 30,000 chips. If you play to 500, you get 40,000 chips. 45-minute levels on day one. It goes to 60-minute levels and then to 90-minute levels. I mean, you don't really see that anywhere unless, like, you start playing a higher buy-in of, let's say, you know, $1,500 or more or $2,500 or more. But I really, truly believe that the structure for me is important because the cream does rise at the top. I'm a patient player. So if you want to neutralize me, put me in a faster structure. But here's the funny thing. Like, even though I like these long structures and deep stacks, I play very well, like, you know, 40 big blinds or less. I mean, that's like my comfort zone. And a lot of times going even into the main this year, I was playing in levels where I was like, I'm too deep to shove, too deep to really uh, call off here. So I got to like raise in this certain spot, like in a 60 to 70 big blind spot, like ace king, like. You just wouldn't go all in for all your sits with 60, 70 big blinds. That, that, that's that's foolish. So, but once those blind levels got down to like 40 big blinds, that's really where my comfort level is. But absolutely, like if you talk about like even the World Series this year, looking at the structures, they, you know, I think they were losing a lot of customers to the Venetian where they were giving these deep stacks 
and you know you would play for 30 minute levels with 30k stack i mean there's a lot of play in that where prior you would buy into a 1500 dollars event and you know you're getting like 8,000 chips with 60 minute levels which the 60 minute levels is not good but you know with 6,000 chips you really don't have any room to make any error you know and that's the thing about it, you know i think a tournament should give enough stacks uh, enough chips where you are deep enough where you can suffer early on or at least get the players more bang for their buck that they can get into the beginning of a tournament and really splash around a little bit and if not you know a lot of these tournaments today are re-entry they can go re-enter so but the structure for me the longer and more chips the better for the me i see now i'm it's it's funny i cover my little gig which started as sort of a mental vacation of covering the tournaments as a blogger for the borgata has put me into contact with with tournaments and tournament strategy more than I ever expected, as I don't do that. I'm not really familiar with how you, as you said, started to study more and continue to, to grow. What does a tournament player do in 2019 to improve his game and keep up with the trends? That, that's a very good question. And I would say for me, the, the the most important thing is that I would the most the, the the fastest I grew was getting players that are better than you and really talk hand histories with them. I think that's like the number one thing because you can have this small knit community and it, for me I had only a handful of players of people that I respected and their opinions. So what I would do is you know I would reconstruct a hand history and I would email them out. And then we would just talk about it, send response. And I'm like, you know, well, what would you do in this spot? What would you do there? Um, so I think that was the number one key that if you do have find better players, definitely speak with those people and say, hey, you know, I have this. And you have to be honest with yourself, too. Like you can't, you know, one thing about me as I grew was that, you know, I knew when I play bad or and you can't just say, you know, chalk it up to like a bad beat or a cooler. You know, one thing I uh, had a friend that conditioned me that, you know, you can't be results oriented, right? You can only control the things that you can control. So to me that once I learned that I really took my game to the next level, but you know, as far as other things that you could do watching videos, I love watching Twitch, even poker streams. Uh, you can just get a little bit of a style of a player that you can connect to, you know, for me, you know, like all in Pav is one of my favorite streamers to watch. Jason Somerville back in the day. But, you know, if you can find a streamer online, you know, I'll turn it on. I'll turn on TV. Even now, you know, you can get now like someone like um, Doug Polk and break down hand histories and watch that. That was another way that kind of grew my game and do it. And the thing was, I would take this stuff and I would mimic with my own crowd. Like I would make my own hand histories and videos for my own players that I would coach and stuff. And by having coaching someone else, it also instilled the values that I'm teaching them. So, you know, if they say, if you really want to be a good learner, be a good teacher. And I really believe that. But having that tight knit community is probably the most important thing you can do. Talk strategy there and be able to respect. But and also reading books. I mean, I think the way I found you originally was, you know, I would going onto poker forums and just kind of reading hand histories and saying, putting my two cents in there and learn it. And the way I learn is like I never had a problem like posting a bad hand history for me. I mean, I've been ripped on these forums and saying like, you know, <laughs> you played it horribly and I didn't have a problem. Please tell me this is why I'm learning from it. And I read it and I learn it. And my problem is, is that I probably matured a lot slower. I've 
been around a lot of talented players where, you know, you can tell people like I remember back in the day, like I was a very tight player where I didn't three bet much. So really over the last three years, I wanted to learn bet, you know, three bet a lot better. And it took a long time for me to learn that, to exercise that muscle. Like I had this to go through repetition to get better and keep failing, fall off that horse, get right back on it and to learn it. Where some people that, you know, they can read something in a book of, you know, a line to take, you know, post flop or a three bet. And then they would know how to do it right away. Where to me, I would always learn something new and proceed to actually just play worse until I got it and learned how to exercise it and learn it at the frequency to do it at. And that's what really took a long time. And really in this main event, when we talk a little bit later, uh, that kind of like all came together and so to speak. Hmm. Well, speaking of practicing and having it come together, does the league, I mean, you say it doesn't run as often as you used to, but are you preparing and are your friends preparing for the main event during the league games? All right. So one of the things that I do, and it's really part, besides having like my big, I have a game called an executive game where we would have, you know, like a hundred players play in for a prize pool locally here. And I do that every November. However, we also, I also run it at my house in my basement. I could fit two tables. So we have 20 players that we do a world series poker league, rake free. No one takes any money. I actually have cameras in a basement. We stream it on Twitch so people can share it with their friends and family. And people love that. And I really go all out with this. So what we do is with 20 players, we have an interesting structure. So we have 20 guys and we play 11 games. The first 10 games, we have a point system. So with the first, so depending on where you finish, you accumulate points. So 20 through 10th, you just get like one point, two point, three points all the way up to 10. And then once you get to the final table, the last table, then the points kind of start jumping from there. So in our series, like 75 points, we get first place. So then after you play these 10 games, you accumulate these points. Uh, we would then drop your lowest score and then accumulate the, your score from there. And the top two players who have the highest score on the leaderboard would earn a seat to the main event. So then what we do that makes it real interesting is that, you know, obviously players would, you know, the top two players might have such a lead for the people that are on the bottom that they might lose interest. Well, the way we keep them interested is what they would do is the, on the last game, the 11th game, the two winners that won, we take them out of the tournament. And then now there's 18 players remaining. And then they play one tournament and whoever wins that tournament, the top two people win that tournament also get a seat to Vegas. However, depending on how many points you accumulated through the season is based on how many chips you would have in that last, we call it the last chance game. So in this last chance game for every point you got, you'll get 75 chips. So the third person who didn't win a seat, they would be the chip leader going into the last tournament. So it really makes a lot of interesting strategies. So everybody, even like if you're playing in game eight and you're out of it, you're playing for chips to get in that last chance tournament to win a, a point. So it's a really a fun league, especially when it comes down to the end because it's strategy. It's like, all right, I got to come this spot to possibly win a seat. And we also have cash prizes in that for third and second. So it's a really interesting way. And this year we were able to send four players out and, um, in the main event that even this deep run, I had a colleague of mine, my buddy Rob, who also went just as far and he won his seat in this league as well. So it's a really fun format. And I look forward to it every year. And this is like the, 
this was the fifth season we've done this to send people to the main. Now, now have, you, have you won these seats? Sure. So I've had pretty damn good success. So I played this year. I played my main event for the sixth time. Every year I've won my way into it. Now through my league, I won it three times and I play some lot of local charity tournaments through other poker leagues around in my area. And I've won three seats through that as well. So in all I played in six of the last seven years, I've won my way into it with little to no money. I pretty much free rolled every time into the main event. So, but this year I did win my seat through my own league on that. I was one of the chip leaders. Uh, so I was one of the first ones, the chip leaders got a seat. And then my buddy, Rob, who also went in there, he won one of the seats in the last chance to get in there where he was like in the, I think maybe he was like in 12th place or 13th place on the leaderboard. And he was able to, uh, ship himself a seat. Nice. nice. So that, that kind of brings us to the present or not the present, but right <laughs> before uh, the series, um, you're in, your friend is in, mm-hmm. Uh, when when do you head to Vegas? What's the preparation? Do you do you play a lot of other tournaments? Tell me about your series before the main. Okay, so this year I went out maybe about a week before because last year when I was out in Vegas, I played in the Golden Nugget main event. It was a six hundred dollar event that had about twenty five hundred players, and I finished sixth place for you know close to thirty thousand. So this year when I went out, I was like, I'm going back and playing in that event because it was well-structured, 45-minute levels, 25,000 chips. Next day is 60-minute levels, all like I told you before, right in my wheelhouse where I wanted to play. So this year I went out, and I actually stayed my first two days. I played at the Golden Nugget. I played in the last flight. Unfortunately, I didn't get above my starting stack in that event, and I busted. So then I went to the Rio, and then the next day I had we had – in my community, I, we were there were like 25 of us out there, not just in my league, but so I knew a bunch of people out there. And then we said, oh, you know, Aria is running a like a $600 tournament. We get to the Aria. They said, nope, it's a 10K. So we said, forget that. Went to Orleans. I played. It was like a $400 tournament. Again, more of the same. Couldn't get my above my starting stack and busted. So then I was going to play the mini main right before. So I wake up that morning and um, to go register. And there was a line that was pretty long. I was like, ah, I'll come back later and the line will be shorter. Well, (laughs) unbeknownst (laughs) to me, that line went like 12 times as long. So I said, forget the mini main. But last year when I cashed in the golden nugget, when I played the main, I really felt like that I didn't get as far as I wanted to I I, I, kind of got complacent in it. And this year I said, I'm really going to put all my effort right into the main event. So really two days leading up to the main event, I didn't do nothing. I got good sleep, rested up. And, you know, I was in my poker tracker, just reviewing hand histories, just kind of priming my mind. And that's how uh, my journey started. Cool. So let's, let's talk about the main event. Mm -hmm. We've got some hands that will form, I guess, milestones. They're Mm -hmm. interesting hands. Um, start with, start with day one. Tell, tell okay. us about, uh, getting started and lead us up to this hand. Okay. So, well, first of all, day one was an absolute disaster. Um, what I mean by that was I had a really tough table. I was, I was in the two seat to my right. I had a female player and I had another female player on my left. And, um, they were, it was amazing because before dinner break, they had all the chips, which was amazing to me. I'm sitting here and they were just, I didn't think they were particularly 
very good players, but they were just calling stations and they were making hands and they were getting there. However, in like the four, five, and six seat was murderer's row. Every time like someone would open up a pot, especially like the player in the six seat at the time, he would just three bet me. And so if I raised it to a thousand, he would set the bar at 3000 and he would just own me. And then, you know, when I would do that, I was tightening up my range. I wasn't connecting with the board and, and I just was just going South. Nothing was working, unfortunately. And, um, it was really tough because I couldn't really play too many speculative hands because it was costing me a lot. And my stack was just going down, going down. And then, you know, one time, uh, one of the aggressive players that was very aggressive, I was in the big blind with ace queen and I hit an ace on the flop and I called all three barrels for him to show up with ace king. So that like took like half my stack. And then I spent like just before dinner break, I get down to like 12,000 chips in this tournament. And I remember going to dinner break, telling my wife, I was like, you know, looks like it's going to be an early day for me. And she's like, well, just sit back. And I'm like, I have 12,000 chips. I can't sit back. I, I have to do something. But fortunately for me, after I came back from dinner break, I ran it back up. One of the girls on my left, I had pocket Kings. She hit top pair and she paid me off. That kind of got me back to 30,000. And I'm sorry, that got me back to like back to starting stack. I'm sorry. At that time, Ran it up, then I took another big hit, and I finished the day with 36,000. That was the end of day one. But I do remember saying to myself on day one, you know, hey, Greg, just take your time. The structure is great. The cards will come. I wasn't getting any cards. I wasn't had any traction going. You know, even if we get through the day, get a new table draw, we'll be able to, you know, just take a new table draw and see if we can go with that. So, unfortunately, the hand that you're showing here is, was actually on day two. So on day two, um, I, so I ended the day with uh, 37,000, which in the main event, a lot of people say, you know, 37,000. I still at the time, I think I probably had like 45, 50, 60 big blinds. I forgot what the structure was at then, but no, in no way was I in panic mode, especially from being down 12,000. So I was just going to remain patient, just wait for my spots and, you know, just pretty much play ABC poker at this point, because I thought my style on, on day one was not very good. I don't think I played very well. I think I played way too passive and I wasn't really getting in there. I was playing not to lose. And I said, that's going to change going into day two. So when we came up to day two, I got moved to a much better table. They weren't three betting like the first table was. Like every time we opened up a pot on day one, it was three bet to a number, and that was the bar. Where this one, you weren't getting three bet as much. It was a much more table that you know I was more comfortable in playing at. The first hand history that was really of interest of in the tournament, where I actually we can we can kind of go through the hand history, but I actually called for my tournament life with ace high. And uh, it was an interesting hand history because this gentleman that was at the table, he was probably the aggress most aggressive player at the table, and he was raising a lot. And I just didn't believe him. You know, I mean, he was showing down hands that I saw that, you know, were not nutted hands. They were, you know, second or third best. So in this in this one hand, you know, we probably I, I had my stack was at thirty seven thousand. I think I got down to about twenty five thousand chips. The blinds were 500, 1,000, and I was in the big blind. And this gentleman, uh, this lag player, opens up to 2,500 chips. And I'm sitting in the big blind with ace-queen, and I had the ace of hearts in this hand, and I call. So the big blind, uh, the, the, the villain in this hand had me covered, 
So, I mean, he was weight covered. He probably had maybe about, you know, 120, 130 K to my 25 K. So, you know, and in this spot, you know, I'm just trying to play very fit or fold and, you know, hopefully I can connect with the board. And if not, I can pretty much go away. So I call his 2,500 from the big blind and the flop comes Jack, Jack nine with two hearts. So obviously I didn't connect it. I do have backdoor hearts to my ace of hearts, but I elect to check here, which I think is a pretty standard check. And he continues for 4,500. Now I just, at that point, I was just like, I knew he was just going to like bet his entire range right here. And he's just going to, that C bet range could be anything from, you know, a made hand to nuts. So I just don't necessarily give him credit for a Jack because there's two Jacks on the board. So it's kind of hard just to make three Jacks there. Did he really open up with a nine? I think I have more nines in my range than he does. So I thought it was a pretty simple call. I said, you know, let me just see what happens on the turn. So I call there and the turn is a three X. So it was a three. It wasn't a hard or anything like that. So I'm pretty much going to give up the hand at this point. So I check and the villain checks behind. So him checking there really tells me a lot, a little bit about his range where at least in my eyes that I felt like if he had a Jack, I don't think he would be, especially an aggressive player. I don't think he's going to be, you know, checking any jacks there. So I think when he checks there, he's definitely taking jacks out of his range. And he's also taking nines out of his range. I think if he has a nine, he's going to bet there. And I just think that, that, you know, he could probably just have a lot of Broadway cards. Um, I think if he had smaller pairs, he would have bet the turn as well. And I probably would just fold if he bet the turn. So then, so I'm pretty much confident that, you know, maybe my ace high is probably the best hand right here. And that's what I was kind of going into the river. I just wanted to see what he was going to do on the river. So the river comes out as a nine. So now the board is Jack, Jack, uh, three, nine, nine. So there's two Jacks and two nines on the board. So I have my ace kicker and I, I pretty much think my ace kicker is pretty good here. So I check and then he tanks and then puts me all in for 25,000. And I was just like sitting back and, and I just didn't believe him. I was like, you know, he could have an ace here. I, I just, I didn't believe he had any small pairs and everything in my body. And I was like, you know, am I really going to call off my main event life here? But I just, Really didn't believe him. I mean, I was down to maybe probably about 18,000 chips if I folded. I remember counting out or something around that in neighborhood. And I really didn't think I could just fold in this spot. It probably was a fold, but, you know, I'm, I grew up very much as a field player. And, you know, they always say your first instinct is right. And, you know, and, you know, you think long, you, you think wrong. And in this spot, I was just like, I just was no mood to fold to this guy because I really didn't think he had anything. And I made the call and I show, I show it, I showed the ace queen. And unfortunately he also showed me ace queen. So it was a good call, but I really didn't get much rewarded. You know, I'm calling for my tournament life to chop the pot, but I think I was, pretty satisfied there where, you know, I thought my radar was on and I thought that was like really my first hand that was of interest in the tournament. Yeah. So yeah, you end so up you getting, getting uh, 7,000 uh, 7, plus, plus the, whatever the antis are. Yeah. I'm risking, you know, the, I, mean, I was uh, risking seven, my seven. tournament life and, you know, in hindsight, I mean, this is not a call I would normally make too. I mean, you know, I'm kind of a person, that, you know, you can, especially in this structure, like, I could fold with 18,000 chips there and still totally be fine. I mean, I'm not saying that we have much room, but it was just kind of ninny. And I just really was one of those in-game, in-flow moments where I just thought I was good here. And, you know, unfortunately, I was somewhat right, I guess, so to speak. But 
if we did post this hand, I think a lot of people would probably said I should be folding there. And maybe I should, but, you know, sometimes you, in hand histories, you don't see that when you'll go through the game. And, and you'll definitely you'll see this in the next two hand histories, which really get interesting. But, um, but in that hand, after, after this hand, I made a good call, which was good because, you know, the players, when these hands get showed down, you know, they're going to start looking at it like, oh, my God. And, you know, that image could work off to me. And unfortunately, I started chipping up on day two and was able to get back to starting stack. And I got over 100K. And I think, you know, really the last level, I just didn't make any big hands, just, you know, three betting people who, you know, I thought would be lightened spots that, and I was able to find some spots, make some couple hands here and there, but nothing to play for a lot of chips. I don't think I really play for any, a lot of chips, but I was able to really run my stack up all the way up to about 112,000, 113,000, wherever I finished to end the day. And then, you know, I was like, okay, on to day three, we go. Day uh, three wow. is when it really gets interesting. Good. Let me just ask That's one thing about this hand. Absolutely. Um, the, the only question, I, I think your call is, is reasonable given everything. He, he doesn't have a lot of incentive to shove a pair on the end. If he has a pair, you could have called with a nine and he's not likely to have a Jack, you block queen Jack, etc. But my question would be why the call and no three bet from the big blind pre-flop? Well, here, here was, here was the thing. I mean, on day one, one of my strategies are on day one in a structured tournament like this. And I agree with, uh, I, I totally agree with you, but in the beginning of the tournament, which is kind of weird. And this is where my philosophy is probably a little bit flawed. So on day one, my overall strategy is kind of keep things close to the vest. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I didn't really want to just like three bet pots from out of position, blow the pot and then totally whiff on it against aggressive opponent where then they can just bet me off it. So for the same price, like if I three bet there, I don't think this villain is folding. Now, granted, you know, I have the best hand. So I don't know how much my three bet would accomplish in there in this in this spot against this type of villain. So now all I'm effectively doing is bloating the pot for a flop that I could possibly whiff. Now, I mean, if you three bet, I have the initiative. I could take the aggressive. So if I three bet the flop, I can come out barreling, uh, not barreling, but I can continuation on the flop and maybe he would go away. But you know, one thing I noticed that a lot of these aggressive players, like when you're short, they definitely leverage. They leaned on you, right? They're going to like, all right, they're going to put me in very binary decisions where either I've got to like call off there or, you know, fold. So I just, with my stack size there, I just didn't want to bloat it. I kind of just want to like connect and then go from there. If I was able to connect with the flop, then I was able to like be a little bit more aggressive into these pots especially out of position. And one of the things I think that served me well in this tournament, and I could tell you overall in the tournament, I really never made any big hands. It's not like, like you aren't going to hear stories where like, oh, I had aces and made, you know, set of aces and coolered people. I burnt those hands. I can count them all on one hand and that happened. I think I only had aces twice in this tournament. But what I really prided myself is like picking my spots, three betting, you know, with my right, correct stack size and kind of preserving my stack because unlike, let's say a cash game and I'm not a cash player and you, Chris, you could probably speak better than this is that, you know, yeah, this is probably an elementary three bet right here. And you know, if you lose, you can just reload where in tournament, every chip is so valuable. And, you know, especially early in day one, you could say, well, you know, if you're a hundred black blinds deep, yeah, you can do that. But you know, at the stage where I was, you know, I had 25 big blinds to start this hand I three bet, he calls, and then, you know, then 
you know, on a Jack-Jack-9 flop, I would continue for another half the pot. So now I'm down to 18,000 chips or whatever it is. And then, you know, if I check back the turn, these players that are very good players might see the check back as weakness attack. And then I got to fold and it's like, wow, I could have played a little bit closer to vest. However, sure, if we sure. flip the roles opposite and I'm in position, like I could do so much more, right? I can like check back for pot control. I could check back for aggression. I can keep barreling on good cards and see like that. But in this tournament, when I was out of position, I played pretty snug and I think it kept me out of trouble and a very, some very, uh, I only had like one or two spots out of position that I didn't really get in too much trouble. And I think in tournament play, playing out of position against a good player is really important. Like, you know, really be selective there. So I definitely a little bit more nitty out of position. Oh, sure. And that's reasonable. That's Calling my, with ace queen and, and having a strong big blind range protected by that is good. I'm, I'm just curious actually from the tournament point of view. Um, and yeah, speaking of that, I'm talking about keeping everything close to the vest, but yet I call off for my tournament in life, right? So, I mean, <laughs> in that spot, it was just really more read basis. I think I have very good table presence of, you know, where I'm at in a hand, so to speak, you know, and what it is. And you'll see the next couple of hands we talk about, you, you'll see more of that come through. For sure. And it's the only other note I want to make is not on your play, but his. It sort of shows the, the tournament dynamic versus the cash dynamic. He doesn't have that much incentive in a cash game to jam here. He mm -hmm. has showdown value. He probably even has the best hand a lot. Um, if he had king-queen, it would seem to me like a better jam. But I suppose in a tournament, claiming that 15,000, 16,000 from the pot is more important. Um, is that why he shoved, do you think? I think so. You know, I also think it was this, this, this player was aggressive. I mean, you know, he, I, I would just think that it's just more of stack sizes more than anything else. I mean, if, if he started a hand, I think he had like 125 to 130,000 chips. Right. So I, I think it was more than a sense that, you know, Hey, I can make a play at this pot. Maybe he felt like the only way I can win this pot is really just go all in. And maybe the way I was playing it with my kind of passive line, so to speak, that he could just, you know, if I ship it all in, I lose. All right. You know, I'm down to a hundred K I'm still in this tournament, but yet I could win a big pot. I think it's kind of more, I think his just aggression of trying just to win those chips without, you know, doing anything. And, you know, with his stack size, you know, what's going to cost him, you know, 15% of his stack, maybe it was something that he could afford in there. So it was kind of hard for his line, but I just know from previous hands with him, he was just very aggressive in just trying to like win every pot. Fair so. enough. So you end the day over a hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. You obviously, you have to feel good about that. Is, how does that stand at that point uh, compared to the average? I think I was probably slightly under average at this point. Um, I don't really remember like looking, I don't really remember what the average at that point was, but I don't think I was in too, too bad of, too bad of a shape in there, but I'd probably say maybe average was maybe about one thirty at that point, but more important to me, like, in a tournament, as a tournament player, I never play to averages. I always play to what, how many big blinds I have, right? So, yeah, sure, averages are nice to say, you know, I'm, I'm above average, I'm below average. But to me, that never dictates my style of playing poker. I think the, as a poker player, my barometer of play of how I play a hand is how many big blinds I have. So, you know, now I'm going into day two, I guess, 
I, I forgot what the blinds were started then. You know, I I would think I was plenty deep there. I think I was probably well over sixty big blinds now going into day in day into day three. I'm sorry, or maybe it wasn't. I'm trying to think. This hand history might be ten twenty four. So yeah, I think you know I think I was like eighty big blinds deep. So you know that kind of is my barometer of how to play on uh, going to day three. Very logical. Mm-hmm. So yeah, tell us about day three. Okay, so this was. Highs and lows for me. So um, day three was by far probably my most favorite day out of, well, I, I can't say the favorite day, but this was the most interesting day. So, of course, I get a horrible table draw. I remember, you know, my friends were posting up on my Facebook account and they're like, oh, Tuna's got a really bad table draw. I had, I was sitting right next to Joseph Chung to my left with 369,000 <laughs> chips. So I was like, oh, great. And then there were like four other stacks at the table that had like 250K. And then, you know, I was like, if not the smallest stack, bottom two small stacks. So I was like, not very good. So I was just like, all right, you know, just more of the same and we'll play and we'll, we'll get it going. But the interesting was, I think I, I think I raised like ace jack off from like middle position, got three bet by the button by somebody I folded. And then like two hands later, my table broke. So I was like fist pumping. I'm like, get me off this table. I can only get, I can only move to a better table draw, right? No, wrong. I moved to his other table that was twice as worse. I get moved to a table with Andrew Brokus, who had 800K at the point on day three. I don't even know how someone can amass 800K in this structure, but he's sitting there, two to my left, with a mound of chips. And then there were a couple 400 and 500K stacks at this table, and I was by far the smallest stack. So at this point, I had bled down to about 100K. And then I had this hand that came up, which quite sure I would love to have your opinion on this. I don't know. I, I still don't know how I really play this, and I don't think I really played it very well, which leads up to a real blunder the next hand. So I get pocket 10s. I have 100K, and the blinds are 12-24 with a 24 big blind ante. And I'm under the gun. I have pocket 10s. So obviously, I opened up to, I opened up the pot to about 6,000, 6, and I have no history on the table. I'm literally at the table maybe for an orbit, so I really have no history at the table. And a middle position player calls that has like a 450K stack has me well covered. So he calls and everybody else folds. And the flop comes eight, four, two, two diamonds. And I do have the 10 of diamonds. So that was a little bit encouraging. So I flop it over pair to this board. So obviously this is a standard bet. And I wanted to size it a little bit bigger because I'm trying to bet for value. But, you know, I am want to try deny equity to anybody who has some Broadway cards. So I elected to bet like 8,500 and he calls. So I'm not really too terribly happy about that, but right now I think I have the best hand, what it is. So the turn card is an interesting card. It comes up as the seven of diamonds. So now I bet, again, we're in the same scenario, right? I Now there's three diamonds on the board. I have the 10 of diamonds, so I do have blockers to another for a diamond. And I want to go larger sizing because, again, I want to deny this guy, this villain, equity. So I make a 12,000 chip bet. And this is where I kind of talk where that might, it, it gets a little bit more difficult because like, am I in the territory where I can just jam the turn and just get all my chips in there? Or do I just bet 12,000 because I'm just way too deep to jam the turn? And I think I'm just way too deep to jam. And I think betting 12,000 or betting like three quarters pot is probably the right call. So I elected to go with a 12,000 chip uh, call and the villain calls. So I'm not very happy about that. 
And then the absolute worst card comes on a rarer. Well, at least I thought it was worse. So the five of diamonds comes on uh, on the flop. So now there's a four flush. I have a 10 high flush. And my 10 is the highest overpair to the board. So again, I didn't really know what to do in this spot. Do I, do I just jam here? I know, I remember saying to myself that if I check here, this guy's just going to bet me. I mean, if I mean, I think no matter what his range is, most players, aggressive players with the stack size they have, and even if I'm in their spot, they're going to put me to the test. So I just thought I should probably make some kind of a blocking bet where I do have showdown equity. I want to realize my equity, but yet I don't want to put most of my stack in there. So I really came up now where I was going three quarters a pot. I kind of now went with a 15,000 chip pot. So I don't know if my opponent was good enough to see that as a blocking bet or whatever. But as soon as I bet 15,000, my hero, uh, uh, my villain shoves all in for my tournament life. And I'm just sitting there like beside myself. I'm like, I, I didn't, I was like, why didn't I just bet bigger on the flop? Why didn't I jam the flop? Why didn't I jam the turn? I'm just like thinking all these things. I like this. I can't believe now I got to fold his hand. I was like, this was a really tough spot for me to do. And like, what is he doing this with? So if we go back, what our villain is calling on the flop and turn with, I mean, like ace high, ace of diamonds, king of diamonds all makes sense here. Uh, I mean, I assume that he could have some kind of like, you know, straight draws that he might have called inside or something like that. But I really didn't really give him credit for that. But for now, my villain to, you know, go all in here. I mean, it just really felt like he had better diamonds than me. So obviously I was just really tilting in the spot while I was tanking. And like, I knew I was folding in the spot, but I was just trying to go in. I'm just trying to understand like, what is he doing this with? And to me, like it just kept adding up to better diamonds here. And, you know, he, for all I know, he might have even had it on the turn and just let me just kind of walk the dog, so to speak, and keep betting and then get the chips in on the river. So I look down, I have 60,000 chips and I fold. So, I mean, I don't going back. I still don't even know how to play this hand. I just think it's a really, really tough spot for sure, especially in this event. So but um I don't know if you want to talk about this hand or if you want to lead into what happened because, like, I am, like, full-blown monkey tilt right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, this, no, this, hand, this hand is an interesting hand, and we can definitely improve your play and how you think about this spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do open from under the gun. Uh, you get a flat, and there's 12,000, 15,000, I suppose, with the antis and uh, blinds, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Eight four deuce two diamonds. You bet about half pot. The thing about this board is that there are no two pairs that you have, no two pairs that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has a lot of draws, okay? And he has a lot, a lot. You're ahead of a lot of hands, and a lot of them have equity. Yes, you mentioned equity denial, which is an important concept here. Hands like queen jack or you know king queen king jack. They don't need to see a half pot bet to fold. So when we think about poker and bet sizing, we want to think about efficiency. If you're betting to deny, the pressure isn't to bet more. The pressure is how little can I bet? Um, And that's where this hand begins to go off the rails. You do accomplish value with the 8500, but you're out of position. Mm-hmm. So the good draws that he has are going to call any bet. You're not going to get him off diamonds. But the value that you want to get from like ace-deuce, 
10.9 is going to be sensitive to price. So the bigger you bet, the, wor- the more they're going to fold the exact value that they want. And you have to think about what their range is, too. If they have a pair of nines or a pair of sevens, are they the type to three bet you? Were you at this tough kind of table where that's going to become a linear three bet? Or do they always just flat there? And that's worth thinking about, too, because if you don't open deuces or fours from under the gun, which would be reasonable, you have more over pairs, but he has all the sets. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of these pressures you actually end up wanting to put less money into the pot uh, to the point where betting a third would would be fine and even sort of normal, but you could even consider checking. And checking has a really, is a very good play on boards like this for the reasons that you will get value later. You have the option to check raise because you can just see all the draws that are available all the way from, you know, Things like 10-9 that have backdoor draws might bet. Obviously, you block those, but they're unless likely. But 5-6, 3-5, any ace gutter, any ace wheel card, um, like ace-3 or ace-5, uh, we can probably make up some more that they might have. Mm-hmm. Uh, those hands will be incentivized to bet when you check. And now you do have this rather cool option of check raising. That's probably a little fancy for a tournament, I understand, because you're risking more. But either way, trending the bet down is going to help you on the flop, and it's going to help this hand play out a little bit easier. On the turn, you don't bet three-quarters pot, at least according to this hand history. There's about, let's say, 16 plus the 15. So there's like 30,000 or more in there, and you bet 12,000. Mm-hmm. This is probably the most trouble in the hand that you get into. This card just improved 5-6, which was a gutter, especially mm-hmm. if they had 5-6 of diamonds. It improves 8-7 uh, and 7-4. If they're loose, it improves 7s mm-hmm. to, a, to a set. Uh, it's not really that good of a card for you. And notice that you now also turn the diamond draw. It's reasonable to bet here. But by betting small, all those hands that you were worried about now are getting the best price possible. But the answer isn't necessarily to bet large either, as you can get jammed off your hand. The answer is to check this turn. Mm-hmm. Um, you have most likely the best flush draw, especially if they three bet preflop with ace x hands or king x hands maybe they call because you're you're the under the gun but i don't know that much about this player we don't have any history but you will get yourself into less trouble by checking this turn does that make sense it it, it does make sense and tell you the truth what i think like going through the moment of it you know i just was i was just afraid to check because with this his stack size and not knowing with him, I mean, you know, someone who has at that point has 450,000 chips in front of him. I mean, those chips didn't get there because he was, you know, a knit. So I just, you know, especially like playing hands out of position in tournaments, it's tough. Like every time, like you just like check, you kind of like give the green light to a player that has more chips or an aggressive opponent to bet and kind of bet anything. Like, you know, they, he could be betting for value. He could be betting for as bluffing and like, I just wanted to like get my, I just wanted to kind of like end the hand here. And obviously my bet sizing was smaller there, but then I do like what you say is that, you know, on the flop, 
by betting smaller, I'm going to keep worse hands in and I'm going to be beating those hands where if I bet larger, I'm only going to keep, I'm going to push out all the, uh, all the weak hands and be losing to all the better hands that beat me here. So it kind of makes sense. And I think at least on the turn play by checking here, I can, you know, be somewhat pot controlling. I mean, what happens if he checks back there? I don't know. Maybe he's trying to realize his equity, what he might have. So yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. But to me, I think I remember in that moment to me, it was like, if I check here, this guy's just going to totally own me. And I have a hand where, you know, now do I really have to fold? And, you know, when you have a hundred thousand chips in a tournament and, you know, you don't really want to lose anymore. You want to kind of, and when you have a hand that is good starting hand that has pocket tens on a flop that it was, I'm trying to increase my stack, but yet, you know, the way I played it, I actually went the opposite way. And I definitely <laughs> realized that I did not play this hand well. <laughs> well. Well, let me explain it just a little bit more and we'll move to the river right after the key point of much of poker strategy is asking yourself, or constructing in a way that you retain your equity against further action. If that equity is worth retaining, or mm -hmm. if that equity is not worth retaining, we don't mind denying equity. The problem is you very likely have the best hand here. But when you bet, you incentivize him on this card to raise you. He could have raised you here and put you in a tough spot. He waited to the river and got the max out of you. Mm -hmm. And we don't know whether that was for a value. We don't know whether it was a bluff. We'll never know. Right. Um, but because you create this situation, the bet actually leverages you far more than checking. Um, if you check with a protected range, and I'm not talking about just checking tens here. I'm talking about checking your range on this card. Mm -hmm. That's great that he bets. Uh, now we play in synchronicity with the board and with our sets, with our flushes, with a lot of hands, we get to continue and we own him. Because as you say, if you check to these aggressive players, they'll often bet and make mistakes. But if we put in money on a card that is likely to improve him or even like sort of improve him, we're the ones who get put in the cage. Agreed. And that is what happens exactly on the river. You now bet small, um, and I actually think that's fine because you are looking you are looking to buy a showdown. You you have a flush. You may even get because there are some lower flushes. You may get a call. It's unlikely because there's now four diamonds on the board. You're you're trying to get a, a crying call from. I don't know, can we can we find somewhere in this board <laughs> a right. lower diamond draw? Yeah. Uh, you know, a nine high diamond draw. Uh, maybe there's one. Um, but even that sort of points to the, another answer. On the river, we have showdown value. Uh, we don't have to leverage ourselves. If we check on the river, he can't shove, most likely. Mm -hmm. And if he shoves, well, it's not going to be a profitable call anyway, because there's so few diamond draws available. There's, everything is compacted into this eight, four, deuce, seven, five. We kind of have to make up some hand like you know, the nine, six of diamonds, which had a straight draw and a flush draw and now made a straight flush. <laughs> yeah. um, so we just find a fold. So I think what's, I think the theme of this hand is instead of betting for fear of something bad happening, um, we use the board correctly and check because it's turned against us. I, I see that because 
even and even by, by would you agree as far as you know checking the turn and checking the river? I'm I'm also now realizing my equity uh, in the hand, and even if he takes control of the wheel, so to speak. Oh yeah, and, see, yeah, that's exactly important. See, initiative and taking control are secondary concepts to poker theory. It doesn't matter who has the initiative. It matters who has the combinatorial advantage. Mm -hmm. And this turn and river are bad for you. Therefore, any of your bets that you make should be extremely polarized. And this hand is exactly in the middle. This is like a middle pair kind of thing, uh, a middle diamond draw that turns into a middle flush. It just mm -hmm. doesn't have any incentive to bet. It has incentive to let him bluff, and it has an incentive to realize its equity and win a bluff cash showdown. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Uh, you get away from it. Uh, I don't <laughs> see his hand. So I get away from it, but I'm like tilted. Like I, now I just went, you know, get moved to this table. I'm at 100k. Now I'm down to like 60, 65k or whatever I was at that point. And this is the very next hand. And talk about compounding a problem fair. And I'm not happy about this, but this is definitely a key hand <laughs> in my whole cool. tournament. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what happened in this hand was now I'm the big blind. I've just lost, you know, 40% of my stack on that last hand. And, um, I'm in the big blind with Jack 10 and it gets folded to the button who opens up and, you know, he opens up to, I think he made a standard raise at the time, which was probably like six, six K. I don't exactly remember, but it was from what I remember, small blind calls. And I'm sitting there and I'm just like calling BS on his raise. I mean, I'm kind of made a little bit of a living in this tournament where, you know, I three betted from the big blind with, you know, a lot of players who just I thought were very weak or their range was very wide on the button. And after going through that and being on tilt, I just wasn't in the mood to like now just give up my big blind to a guy that I think is raising on the button with a very wide range here. And I just did probably the worst thing you could probably do in this tournament with this structure, because, you know, I probably at this point still had, you know, 30 big blinds. So what do I, what do I elect to do? I elect to go, go all in. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was just like, you know, I was, I was definitely fully tilt. I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to die all equity. Just give me that steal and, you know, I'll move on. Right. Well, to my surprise, my opponent snap calls me. <laughs> and the small blind folds, and he turns over pocket aces. So I pretty much said, well, that's my main event. I'm going to live these next two hands in the rest of my life in nightmare. And um, fortunately for me, a king came on the flop, an ace on the turn to give him a set, and uh, for some poker god that likes me, put a queen on the river to give me a straight and to give me new life. So I mean, this is definitely the worst hand, but, I mean, I would – it wouldn't be interesting if I didn't put this hand here. And I'm not saying I played it good. There's nothing I could even say remotely good about this, but I was tilting. But obviously, if it, if I didn't win this hand, I'm out of the tournament and I didn't have the later success out of it. And, you know, I was able to I'll take this second life and really turn it into something in this tournament. Well, isn't it funny how it works out this way sometimes? You get you get saved and now someone else is telling a bad beat story. Yeah. I mean, well, hey, I always tell people poker, right? You could do everything right in poker and lose, and then you could do everything wrong and win. I mean, that's just the way poker works out. And unfortunately for me, I remember raking the chips, telling the guy like this, you know, desperate people do desperate things. I don't necessarily, looking back at it, at 65K, should have been necessary to be desperation, but I'm not proud of it. But, you know, I got lucky, and I could tell you, and I'm sure you can agree, Chris, that any person who 
won the main event or won any tournament, got lucky along the way where they didn't play optimally and, you know, this was there, but it wouldn't it wouldn't really make a great story without telling this hand. And, you know, so now I go from 65K, I'm back to where my starting stack is. And, you know, I was like, all right, I'm back into this again. And the best thing that happened after the fact over here was one orbit later, they break our table. So now I got moved to in the pavilion into like an outer table, which all my stacks were now in line with mine. I think I had like 125K. We were all about that same area, except for like this one player that was two to my left and he might had like 250 K. So it was very good where I spent the rest of the day, just really like chipping at pots, winning a couple of hands, making some hands. Nope. 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 I don't have, I don't remember any big hand histories to say that like I coolered anyone in these spots, but you know, just playing my position, you know, picking my spots and I was able to chip up and I started now to like break away. And it kind of leads into this third hand here. So I would say at this point now we're like post dinner break and I have about 300 K and I would say we were even about 200 away from the money now. And this interesting hand came up uh, over here, which uh, again, I don't necessarily played it well, but I, this is the reason why I gave you these hand histories because they definitely make it interesting. I mean, like I tell you, I could tell you, you know, where I made huge hands and got there. So, but let me just tell you a little bit about it because I think it's it, it kind of interesting. So this Asian player gets moved to my table right in, on the button. And as soon as he sits down and we pretty much have similar stacks, I may have had him slightly covered. He maybe had like, you know, I had 300 K he probably had maybe like 250, maybe on the low side if it was. So now obviously we have no history together. So this Asian player comes, sits down and it gets folded to him and he opens up the pot. And again, if you want to own me in any poker tournament, like just like open raise from the button, like I give it like, <laughs> I give it like no value. Like, like Clearly. I, don't, I yes. don't believe you. So just have a hand on the button and you can own me like that guy did with the aces. So he opens up the pot and I have my, this is actually my favorite hand. I mean, some people have favorite hands, but if anybody who knows me, I play nine, eight is my favorite hand. And I usually try to play which any kind of affordable. So I look down, I look at my favorite hand, nine, eight suited. And I then three bet the guy. So the blinds at this point were 2000, 4,000 with a 4,000 ante. And I'm in the big blind button opens to 10 K the small blind folds. And I elect to three bet to 33 K. And really this is just purely to make him fold. I just wanted this pick up that dead chips. Let's move on to the next hand kind of tells the guy, you know, in tournaments, you know, as a tournament player, you also got to tell players, you can't just let players be able to come in and just like, you know, in the big, in, on the button and they say, Hey, I'm going to raise your big blind every time I have the opportunity. I'm the, I'm a big proponent, even if it's going to sacrifice me that I will three bet them. And sometimes I'll th three bet them three or four times. They do it and kind of put them in their place because you'll be surprised how many tournaments I've been through where I was able to use that strategy. And then like, sure, I might be risking equity now, but it will save me later where, you know, these people now when it folds a button and their range is weak, that they'll just fold those hands. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, I call it fear equity that I'm trying to, to develop there. And, you know, one thing I do is that like, you know, I'm not going to be a target of a big blind. So I do defend a lot and I will punch back and to kind of set a presence. So this guy comes in and again, I three bet the 33 K I had 300,000 chips. It was something that I can risk. And if I do get called, I have a very playable hand. I mean, nine, eight suit is probably one of the best hands. Even if his range is super strong, this is exactly the type of hand that you would want to three bet with because it has so much playability.
So I did three bet to 33K, but unfortunately, to my disliking, my villain called me. So I didn't like that. So off to the flop we go. So the flop comes ace, king, queen. So not a very good flop for my hand. But now, obviously, if I'm going to three bet there, I'm going to, you know, I always say a three bet is a two step process. We three bet pre flop. We pretty much on most boards got to follow up. But if you look at this flop, ace, king, queen, who has all the good aces, who has all the good kings, and who has all the good queens? It's going to be me because I three bet pre-flop, and this is like an automatic continuation bet for me, right? You know, even, you know, the only flop, like, I would be a little bit more wary if it was something like, you know, jack, 10, rag, where kind of he has a little bit more range advantage there or, you know, like 8, 7 or something like that. But this flop, I'm repping all the good aces, all the good kings. Even if he has a hand like ace eight suited on the button here, that you know a, a, a bet should take this down. So I continue, uh, and I wind up betting three thousand into whatever it was a seventy thousand, seventy-five thousand chip pot, and the villain calls, and pretty much I kind of cursed myself and said, okay, I'm pretty much <laughs> done with this hand. But you know, I gave it a shot. So. Again, an interesting card comes on a turn. It's a three. It's a rag. It doesn't make anything. It's a total brick card. And I'm pretty much giving up at this point. I check and the villain checks. So as soon as when the villain checks, what does that tell me about his hand? It's kind of telling me like, well, he called the flop. So he's kind of telling me he has like a one pair hand. Maybe he has like a king uh, or a queen or maybe he has an ace with a bad kicker. So he's kind of telling me he has this like one pair of hand. He definitely has draws too. So, I mean, you know, I don't think he has a hand like Jack 10. I think Jack 10 would start putting money in a pot. He doesn't have two pairs. I think he's going to put money in a pot, but he could just have just a, a Jack there or something like that. So he's kind of telling me that he has like one pair of hands and maybe, you know, weighted a little slower, some kind of draws here. There was no flushes or straights out there. So we've checked the turn and I'm like, okay, whatever. So the river comes as a nine which pairs my nine. So now when I kind of thinking about like, well, he just checked the turn. He has one pair. I'm like, well, the only way I can win this flop is really make a big bet here. So, and I would be betting as a bluff. I wouldn't be betting for value. I don't think my nine is the best hand here as I think that, you know, he has some middling cards. So because I had such a large stack this time, you know, really, I always play to my stack size. You know, I can afford to make a play at this pot just because of my stack. Not that I really want to lose it, but I did upsize the bet to 65K on the river because I really thought that if I make a big bet here that he could fold a one-pair hand. And that's exactly why I'm trying to fold out is a one-pair hand. I know if he had two pair, if he had a straight, he's not going anywhere. But I think all those hands would start betting on the turn. So... I bet 65K and the villain is tanking and he tanked until someone called the clock. And the whole entire time while he's tanking, I'm just saying to myself, fold, fold, fold. And he looks back at his cards and I'm like, oh, he's folding now. And then he caps his cards again. I'm just like, fold, fold, fold. And then all of a sudden he decides to call. So I was like more curse words to myself. And I turn over my hand. The dealer pulls the nine in front of the board and he puts it out there and he's not doing anything. He's kind of like <laughs> looking at the board, looking at his hand. And looking back at his car, and I'm like, did I just win this? And then after like a good 10, 15 seconds, he mucks his hand. So, yeah, I was, now the whole table sees this, right? And they just think like I was super crazy in this spot because this is important hand, what leads up to after this. But I'm like, no, no way that I thought my nine was ever going to be good there. And, but think about it, Chris. I mean, like, what could he be holding there? Like pocket sevens? I mean, and like he has no history and, you know, 
I don't know what made him call in that spot. And it's funny, we did make it through the end of the day. And I went back and approached him to it. And I was like, do you remember that first hand you came to the table and yada, yada, yada. And he was like dumbfounded. Like he didn't, couldn't even recall what I was, the hand that I was talking about. And I'm like, dude, you lost like one third of your stack. <laughs> you don't recall this. So he couldn't tell, but I mean, I don't know what hand is calling me there, like except for like a middling pair, like pocket sevens, pocket eights, or something like that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say that he remembered. He just didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> Maybe I, th- that could very would be well, but I mean, it looked like he was definitely uh, befuddled. <laughs> I, you know, it's 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 interesting. You're obviously bluffing and representing not. You're not representing a purely nut hand this is like a large it's a large bet it's true this time you there's over eighty thousand in the pot and you're betting 65k uh you've checked the turn you're not if you started barreling with aces or kings you probably don't check the turn mm-hmm. um although i do want to mention that the flop is not quite as advantageous as you think because he should have a lot of pair and gutter hands here like king 10 queen 10 I'd imagine. Um, so it's even though it's certainly a reasonable C bet, I think it's. I think your 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 bluff on the end is necessary. It's necessary to recommend to see that your nine should not be good, uh, and that he calls is just pretty amazing. I guess he he he's looking at the price and he's seeing it as polarization, and it's very very unlikely that the exact set of circumstances occur where you three bet with the bottom of your range, hit the nine and now turn it into a bluff. So his call is, I guess if he's saying he has sevens, he's, he's thinking that you three bet, I don't know. I mean, you'd hit like a very low suited connector or deuces, threes, fours, fives. Mm-hmm. Um, those would, those would sort of be, in your range, I suppose. Um, threes make a set. I, I just don't think he should call. I, I don't know what to say about this hand, bud. <laughs> and, and not only that, I mean, to have no history, too, right? I mean, I, I will tell you this, which, which kind of weird dynamic. You know, when I sit at the poker table, you know, I'm usually in, like, a T-shirt. For some reason, in this tournament, I'm very superstitious player. So, like, you know, I wore, like, I had white uh, slacks on. And I wore them the whole entire tournament. And I had this tank top that I wore. And it was weird. This is like the first time I ever like wore a tank top to a tournament. But for some reason, you're out in Vegas. It's hot. You know, on breaks, we would go out, out and back. And, you know, I liked wearing a tank top. But for the first time I ever played poker, I felt people reacted to my presence, physical presence, looking at this guy from New York. That, you know, might, I don't know, think it necessarily have like a true, you know, a Brooklyn accent or anything like that. But people look at, and I'm wearing this tank top, you know, my guns are out, so to speak. And it was weird. I definitely had a dynamic that people thought that I was looser than I really was. And I think when I was in that mode, people, I don't know, this might just just mean this, you know, just disillusional, maybe not. But I felt like I was getting like a lot loose callers or people were a lot more thinking that I was more reckless and more as a maniac, not I want to say maniac, uh, maniac or just more laggy, so to speak. But it kind of worked in that sense, because like after this hand, now I'm up to like 400K. Right. 
And we got closer to the bubble. I'm wearing a tank top. People just saw me, you know, bluff at a pot with a pair of nines on this crazy board at my table. And I would have to admit, the table that I got moved to, there were pretty a lot of weak players, I thought. There was one player that, when I first sat down, he had chips, he was aggressive. But then as he started to diminish, he kind of got tighter. And then I started to assume the role as bully. And as we got, I would say, 100 players out, I'm now like the chip leader at the table and I start raising up every hand. And Chris, I mean, I raised every hand, maybe from a hundred players out until we got to the money. And of course these guys were stalling and I didn't want to call clock on him. I didn't want to like, you know, poke the, poke the cow or, or poke the bull or so to speak. And I didn't complain about much, but I just vacuumed chips from 400 K to all to whatever I finished was like 650,000 until we got the money. I mean, player two, five raise every hand I raise once in a while, a player would lead out and bet. And then I would three bet them and they would fold. I mean, I was like, I got zero resistance. It was like the best time I ever had in a tournament. I was like in the pure God mode seat, right? I mean, it was just raising and they were folding. There was one guy that every once in a while would give me a little bit of difficulty, but I got the best of him for the most part. So for over for the next hour and a half until we got into the money, I just vacuumed up all these chips and I just pretty much almost got a third of my stack by doing absolutely nothing. And oh, wow. I think all this between my image, between that hand and me now raising every single hand, these guys think I was nuts, but it was just a, a role that you get. I mean, it was, there was a classic example, like, you know, you know, put pressure on the bubble. I mean, these guys were just wanted the cash. I mean, especially like the two players to my left and right, they were really short. And I was just like, you know, Hey, just, just fold and you'll get there. I was pretty much telling <laughs> I was like, you guys fold, you'll get there. And they were believing me, you know? And not only that, like, I mean, like stupid stuff I see at the table. I remember like on day five, I was playing with Chris Power and he sits down. We just unbagging our chips and he, he, goes, he answers the question. He goes, how many players are playing their main event for the first time? Three <laughs> players go me. I'm like, why oh, no. would you ever admit that? I was like, bullseye target, bullseye target, bullseye target. I mean, so it was just, you, you, you see this. I mean, in the main event, you think at 10K buy-in, you know, Really, table draws are so important, and, and to me to pull that table draw was incredible. So you know, then you know we finished day three, we're in the money. Now I'm like six hundred and fifty thousand. I was like, wow, I had the time of my life once I got moved to that table, and now you know now we're in the money, so to speak. And to me, I'm golden. I mean, like when I play in the tournament, like I don't have like aspirations. Like a lot of my players say, Tuna, you're a good player. You know, I think you're going to go deep, and you know. It's nice to paying a compliment, but I don't approach tournament poker. I don't think any tournament player should look at like, oh, I'm going to win this. I don't look at it. My approach is play well, and it takes you where you lead it. If I play well, I just want to concentrate on the things I can control and what I can do. And if I play well, I'll see where it leads me. And if it leads me at the end, then maybe, you know, if there's, you know, 20 players left in a tournament, then you could probably think, hey, maybe I have a shot at this thing. But that's all I was trying to do is just make good decisions. Unfortunately, the, the hand histories we discussed are probably the worst hands I played in this out of the 60 hours. Of course, I can give you hand histories, you know, on day four, on day five, you know, I made a set of threes to double up my stack. You know what I mean? You know, nice. so whatever. But the thing is important is that, you know, like my aspirations are not to win a tournament. So when I cashed in this tournament, like my first goal was to, you know, mim cash. So 15,000, I pretty much got there in zero dollars. Now I just really profited. 15,000. So now I got $15,000 locked up in a tank and we go on to day four. So, I mean, we can go a little bit quicker here because 
pretty much was pretty much standard there. So now I'm going. So let me yeah. um, interrupt yeah. you and just ask one thing as sure. before. Uh, seems like a good moment. You've played now with Joseph Chong, Andrew Brokus, and, and probably mm-hmm. other names. Um, any observations on as to how these big stacked players and, and famous names were playing? What, what were they doing at the tables that might interest uh, you or the listeners? Well, I can't really compliment like Joseph Chong, but Andrew Brokos, I mean, he was sitting there with 800 K like, let me tell you, like he played every button. I mean, these, unfortunately, all these players pretty much had a stack to be aggressive, but you know, they were in line. I mean, they, I mean, the better players that I was playing with, if they were a name pro or not, right. There was a very good balance between aggression and not going overboard. I can't tell you how many times like going forward on day four and five that players had stacks and he just pumped them off. I mean, that's like, I, I would just be dumbfounded by that. Or they just kind of like panicked and gave and, and gave up. I'll give you one example. Going into day four, I played with Ricky Guam, which is a Jersey pro that plays. And I played with Ricky. It was funny because when I played with Ricky, I'll lead into, I'll, I'll lead into this. So when we started day four, I started with 600,000 chips. My first table draw was not very good, but even though I, I was one of the bigger stacks, my stack just went south. I went from 600K down to 200K. So again, I have all these chips. They just all went away. Just didn't make any hands. I would raise up, ace, king, not connect. And this happened for like two hours, lost every pot I played, and then they moved me. So then I moved to this other table, and then Ricky comes to my table. Now, I know Ricky... I don't know if he remembers me. I played with a couple of times with him at Brigada. I don't know if he remembers with me. And at this point, you know, now I'm down to like 20 big blinds, 30 big blinds. And I'm like in my wheelhouse. And I, you know, I like to have fun at the table and I had a hand. I don't know. Remember what it was. Maybe it was like something like Ace King. I had like 20 bigs. I knew it was going in and Ricky raised. And I said, Ricky, be, uh, I just want to let you know, I love your stream. And what, why, before, before I, I go all in, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate watching you on Twitch. I'm all in. And you know, he just like gives a smile, like, you know, he winds up folding there. And at that stage of the tournament, when I got moved to that second table with 20 big blinds, I just really just executed good push fold uh, techniques where, you know, I just thought my range was ahead of theirs, you know, button raise. I looked down, I have, you know, ace queen suited, you know, it went all in. And I must have went on day four at that stage, must have went all in 10, 12 times. I don't think I was called once. Oh, and, wow, wow. And I was able to chip from 200K back to like 800K. Then I got over a million. Then I made a couple of hands, wind up uh, winning a couple of uh, hands. Like I made some nutted hands uh, against Ricky where he bet out. But I tell you, Ricky came to my table and he pretty much gave away his chips, I thought, from watching him play. So even this, I just think like sometimes these pros feel like they sit at the table, like they just need to like accumulate chips. And some of them are very good at it, the way they do it. Maybe they just got unlucky, but, you know, some of the stuff I just thought wasn't warranted. And one thing I was very even keeled at this tournament, like I knew when I had to gamble, I knew when I could have pulled back the reins. And so some of the players did that. I mean, uh, Andrew Brokos, I, I, I was just very short lived, but the very few hands I was at the table, he was in there and he was pushing his stack around. So, okay, okay. And, and they were utilizing it. So, aggression never fails, fails no matter who you are. Well, you know, I mean, like, I just think, like, if you have to err on something, I always said that, like, if you don't know what to do, like, be passive or aggressive, I always try to take the aggressive route. So even if that busts me out of tournament, like, that was my default play because aggression wins. Like, being passive doesn't really. 
So, you know, I'm just very, I'm more passive out of position and I'm very aggressive in position. So those are a couple of hand histories that, you know, that we talked about. And, you know, so on day five, you know, I'm bit, I was fortunate enough to ladder up a couple of spots and, you know, I'm laddering up and I wouldn't really say like, when I play like at a Borgata, which may not be a 10 K tournament, you know, I really don't look at laddering. My goal is on the final table because that's where all the chips at. And it was funny when I started playing this tournament, my first couple levels, I really didn't care. Like, you know, all right, you know, I just won another $4,000 here by, you know, not playing this hand. But then, you know, the increases started to get bigger and bigger. They were like $10,000 or six to $7,000 increases. And I would only say one time I folded because I remember we were two away from the money. I had ace jack of hearts with like 25 big blinds under the gun. And if we were like not close to a pay jump, I probably might've shipped it there, which I don't know if that's a very good ship with in the tournament. That's his point. Maybe at 20 bigs, it could be, I remember it was ace jack of hearts, but I elected to fold. And fortunately I made the next pay jump, but you know, day five was pretty good. Like the, the beginning of the day I went South and I spent the rest of the day to get all those chips back and then some, and I wind up bagging, like, I think like 1.3 million. So okay, we go into the next day, which is now day five. Now, like, the shit was getting real <laughs> in the sense that like, you know, just, you could see that, you know, the field, was, I think we started like day five with like 300 players, 350 players. And I will tell you at this point, like I never at this point really say, wow, you know, I'm deep in this tournament. It was just more of the same, right? I get up now I'm playing this day and I kind of felt like, you know, I went down and then I went back up and, you know, I kind of survived, just made it through the day. I never really said, well, you know, like, Hey, it's day five. I can't believe I did. I wasn't like in awe until really until day six, which I'll get to that in a moment. But, but now it's just like more the same. And when I had day five, I had like 1.3 million chips. I remember the first hand I was playing with the last girl standing, this girl, her name was Jill Bryant. And I tell you, she played well. She was very aggressive. This, this uh, woman, I never played with her before, but again, we talk about aggression in tournaments. There was no reason why she was in that tournament or the last woman's hand because she was aggressive. I remember the first hand I had literally the first hand, she raises it up and I was in the big blind with pocket eights and the flop comes ace, Jack rag. And she bets. And I just thought like I check and she bets. And I was like, all right, you know, like, like, I just don't believe C bets in that spot. I like, I have a hand with equity. It's just hard to make a pair. And she did do this for middle position. So I don't know how necessary good a call it was, but she made a bet and I called and I remember she did something interesting on the turn on the turn. I uh, was like a brick. So it was like ace Jack, a brick brick. And I had pocket eights. And on the turn, she made a very interesting bet. She made a very similar size bet. And usually to me, that's signs of weakness. It either kind of tells me like they don't have anything or they have a hand that they like, but is not very good. And if she made like another normal size bet, let's say like a half size bet, I probably would have folded my eights. But because she kind of made a similar bet, I was like, all right, she's not that strong here. And that's why I called the turn. And then when the river came, it went check, check. And she said, King high. And I took down that pot. And I was like, all right, this day is off to a good start. But I will tell you, she did play very good. She was fearless. 
And, um, you know, and I remember she saying something that I want to be the last woman standing at. She made some kind of comment at the table. And I was at the table with Chad Power, which was getting a lot of media attention because he was wearing his gold jacket with these ugly sunglasses in my mind. And, you know, and he was like very great. He had like four point million chips at that point, And I had like one point four at this time. And he was using his stack. He was definitely aggressive. And you're talking about a player. So, I mean, every time it was folded to him, he pretty much opened up the pot. And then everything went south for me again. Couldn't make a hand. I managed to turn trips in one hand and lose to a flush. And I really thought the way I played, I don't remember the exact hand in history, but I pretty much lost the minimum in there. I didn't go broke with it. And then I flopped middle set with pocket eights against that girl, Jill, where she flopped a straight. And I lost at the absolute minimum. I mean, I think I went like check, call, check, call on the turn and river. And then she showed me a straight, but that did take significant portions of my stack. I tried to raise with, you know, a, a middling hand and, you know, I would get three bed and I was forced to fold. So next thing I know I'm down from 1.35 million down to 300 K. Okay. And then my first double up came in, Chad power opened up the pot. I looked down with pocket jacks. <laughs> I remember sticking it in and I made another comment and believe it or not for some tournament players, believe it or not, this stuff works sometimes. Start talking. Like I, 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 before I suck it in, I, I said, I'm all in, but I only want one customer. And stu- stupid stuff like that, people that, you know, even if you, if you just work it in a reverse tell, so to speak, you know, you start talking a little bit of speech, someone might fold there. And I'm not saying, obviously, with Pocket Jacks with 300K at the point of the tournament, I want to call there. But yeah, I did. I only wanted one customer. You don't want two people calling you at Pocket Jacks. But, you know, a lot of times, like, I'll be at a tournament and say, all right, you know, seat open or, you know, let's start the car. I can't believe sometimes I get the amount of folds at that and they, they believe me that, oh, okay, you know, he's saying that he must have a stronger hand. But sometimes these are little techniques that kind of worked at me at the table. So in that hand, I had pocket jacks. I make my, my little comment and Chad Power would have none of that. He called with pocket threes and I think he had flopped a, a gutter to a straight and I got there. I double up to 600K. And then they break my table, and now I get moved to Antonio Espendari's table. So we get moved over his table. First thing, I didn't even realize that I was at his table. As soon as I sit down and I hear it, he says, uh, welcome to the table, sir. And I look down, and I say, oh, I'm like, oh, shit, it's Antonio. So, uh, but one, one, one funny thing that happened, like, we played a hand, and he asked my name. And I was like, oh, my name is Greg Candido, but they call me Tuna. I go, what's your name? <laughs> so he gave a good uh, chuckle at the table. You know what I mean? I was like, and, and he's like, Antonio, he goes, my name is Antonio. Oh, okay. Nice to meet you. But you know, he knew I was joking in that spot, but we had a lot of fun banter. You know what I mean? A lot of players that was annoying in this tournament were just like tank calling. I'm a very fast player at the table. You know, I'll, you know, I make very quick decisions. I don't know. Maybe it's just my online background that, you know, within 30 seconds, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Or, you know, as I even see the action develop, I pretty much know what I'm going to do for the most part. Mm-hmm. But the most annoying thing in poker is that these players are taking an, a, an absorbent amount of time to make a decision. And it really kills poker. And I, I remember Antonio, he, he one time he praised me, he goes, I pray for your quick, uh, he, he praised me for my quick play. And that's one thing that we should definitely get out of poker is that, you know, I had one player that was staring at me up and down, like the player on my right. And I went to him, I go, are you going to propose? I mean, it's just really <laughs> uncomfortable. I just, I just, I don't think there's a place for that in poker. I mean, I don't know what they're trying to accomplish there. I understand they're trying to stay balanced between their tells and stuff, but you know, you should, within 30 seconds, you should make a decision. 
So, but you know, I did play Antonio. I did have one significant hand. I mean, it's nothing to say. I mean, I turned the nuts against him and he paid me off, but he didn't pay me on the river when I, when I raised him on the river. But so I was with Antonio. I was like, I remember I was telling my wife, I'm playing with Antonio, which he was a lot of fun to play with. And then they break my table. No, no, I'm sorry. They moved me away from the table. As soon as they moved me away, they moved them to the feature table. So that was a little okay. disappointing. So that would have been fun to play on the feature table. So then I got moved to my outer table and I kind of hung around there till the end of the day. And then I would say the last two hours, everything caught up because I was getting very little sleep during this tournament and playing in a structure like this. Now I'm into this tournament for about almost 60 hours now. And I was exhausted. I mean, mentally drained. I was just like, oh man, I just want to get through this day. And I wasn't getting any cards. I was just folding and I had a stack. Now I'm down to like, you know, one, two, I remember I was at like 2 million and it got down to like one and a half million. And I was like, you know, I'm just, just get through the day, Greg, just be another day. And then they announced that they're going to play for another hour. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> just yeah, get me through yeah, the day. So I did power through with 20 big blinds. I bad like 1.6 million chips where after I peaked about 3.6 million in this tournament. And that got me to day six. Now, when I got to day six, this was the first time where the realization, like how far I'm like looking at the board is 106 players left out of 86, 8,500 players. And I'm like, I'm only 105, four players away from $10 million. And not even that, like, even if I can just like play through the day, you're going to break, you know, six digits. And I know they played down to 45 players, I think paid 211 for me. That would, this would definitely be my biggest cash up to this point. You know, I had some little decent caches, but I'm, again, I'm not, a full-time professional. I just play a lot. So the money was a kind of important to me, but I had a weird situation where I w we were at 106 players left and well, just talk about my poker community. I mean, the overwhelming support that I was getting, I was getting text messages from everybody in my community. I was getting high school buddies that I didn't even talk to and saying that were reaching out to me and wishing me good luck. I mean, it was just so overwhelming. And like, that was like really the first time I was like, holy crap, I'm really like day six. I mean, how many people can say they made day six in the main event? You know what I mean? Even people I admire haven't even got that far. And people were telling me like, dude, this is this could be life-changing. And it could be. But the only problem I was facing in the day six was I only had a 20 big blind stack, unfortunately. So I knew the writing was on the wall. Like I didn't like had aspirations to get to the final table. I knew I had to win like a flip or two. I had 1.6 million. I knew I had to get about four to five million to get back into this tournament where I could be comfortable and start playing again. Until that point, I didn't have that. So here I had a little bit of, of a strategy, which I was even talking to my wife. I said, we had 106 players left in the tournament and 99 got a $10,000 pay jump. Now, of course, hey, $10,000 is $10,000. That's a significant jump. But I didn't know how quickly we would get to that. And I didn't think we were going to get it too quickly. So on day six, my strategy going into the tournament was that I'm going to fold every hand unless I get like pocket uh, jacks or better or ace king and ace queen or pocket tens, you know, depending on how late my position is, I'm just going to let it rip. Uh, any other hand, I'm just going to fold. So that was my strategy when we started day six. So unfortunately, I made two laps. And at that point, the blinds were 40, 80 K. So every lap was 200 K. So I literally lost in two laps, 400 K. So I'm now I'm down to 1.2 million chips. I look up the board and there's still 105 players left in this tournament. And I'm like, you know, I'm wishing like these guys and at my table, there were a couple of two short stacks. They doubled up. 
So I was like, you know, I don't think I could just now sit back here anymore and go. I mean, I got to play because at the end of the day, I really don't want to play for 10,000 more. I want to play for 10 million, but I gave it a good old college try. So then I came up with my bust out hand where this uh, gentleman, Kim, to my right, in the two orbits, he probably opened up 75% of the hands. So he opens up the pot under the gun, which I can kind of give him a little bit of credit because he's under the gun. I look down with pocket sixes and I... Not only that, I have to worry about if I do jam here, anybody behind me reshoving on top of me. So, but I just thought in this spot against this guy opening up, I just said to myself, I, I mean, I sat there for a good 30 seconds. Like, I just can't fold this hand. I'm like, I got to get it in here. And, you know, I, I can't just let myself blind out because another two spots, it's going to cost me another 200K. Now I'm down to a million chips and my fold equity is diminishing rapidly. So... <laughs> I just said, seat open, put the chips in there and, you know, just fold it back to him. He had ace king and two kings came on the flop and, you know, GG, what can I tell you? But, um, but the, the ride was absolutely fabulous. And looking back now, even after the tournament, I'm really proud of the way I did it because I really never, I had aces twice in this tournament. I never had big pairs. And I'll tell you a, a little side note with my other buddy who finished in this tournament, he finished 112 in my league. So to have two guys from the same poker series that I held at my house over here to finish in like the top 0.2% was absolutely amazing. And my buddy Rob uh, Pardo, who was who finished 112, it was funny, like on breaks, we would go out and console each other on breaks and kind of this talk about the stuff that unfolded. And I was trying to keep him even keel because he always played from ahead. Like first day he finished like with 130 K. Then the next day he finished with 400 K. He always had a way above average and we would go out on break. And I'm like, Rob, so how you doing? He's like, I got a straight flush and got paid. I got quads. I got paid. I got three sets, got paid. I'm like, Rob, I can't even make top pair. How the hell are you doing it? So me looking back in this tournament, you know, I really got to 106 place with zero cards. I mean, just picking my slots, selective aggression, just really have tournament experience. And that's what I'm really more proud about. I mean, I can't even tell you any huge coolers I had. You know, of course, I made a set on day five, which was a needed uh, time. But I mean, it was pretty standard in my spot, right? You raise, hit a set and the chips went in. Unfortunately, that guy made two pair and we got all our chips in. But really just weaving in and out. And sometimes for me, I think I play my best poker when I don't get those big hands. And, you know, you get a pair of hands like aces and Kings. It only means two things. You're going to win a big pot or lose a big pot. And I really didn't have too many of those. You know, unfortunately I did get very lucky on, you know, day two, but, but the ride was absolutely amazing and something that will last a lifetime for me. And anybody who is a poker player out there, that is a tournament player that, you know, has aspirations. This is why I tell people in my own community, even if it's a bucket list, go play the main. I mean, it's, it's something that you can sit back. I mean, it took me, this is my second cash. I played in a six times. This is my second cash in a main, but even if you don't cash in just to go through it and just to say you played in it, I mean, it's a hell of experience and I highly recommend it for everybody. You know, even if you, I mean, I would never lay $10,000 out, but you know, I don't know what people's financial situation is, but once your lifetime, I would highly recommend it. And it truly gets exciting once you get past day three. You know, the cameras come out and it, the, it really gets real. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wish I'd done it. I don't know why I, I keep why. skipping it. Um, <laughs> one, last, one last question for you sure. since we're wrapping up and uh, actually we need to close out. You know, you played at some tough tables. But as you got down to day six, day five and day six, 
Tell me a little bit about the quality of the play. Did, was it, did it really get tougher or what's the experience of the main event at that point in terms of game difficulty? It, absolutely. Cream rises to the top. It, the play definitely got tougher. I mean, what do I mean got tougher? I mean, see, it's funny. Like for me, if I have chips, it's easy to play because I had, when you, when you have chips, you have all that ammunition. You have your whole toolbox of to work with everything, right? Kind of like that nine, eight hand. I can, you know, put a lot of pressure on my opponents and stuff like that. But when you're battling 20 big blinds and you're playing against good players, you know, you just can't raise the button. Like one thing, like in this tournament, like I don't even know what my frequency was like raising the button is because like I got zero respect and I can't tell you how many times I raised the button where I was three bet, three bet from the blinds. So with the better players, they realize these spots and they would really attack you, especially if your stack is smaller. So with the better players and going through the tournament as the chips got bigger, it definitely got tougher. And, you know, I really kind of this picked my spots. I kind of played straightforward, but you know, when I had hands, that had equity. I didn't fold or, you know, I, I, you know, I punched back. So working off my image at the time, because if I had to say overall, I pretty much played tight aggressive. And when I came alive, some players kind of got out of the way or some players just simply paid me off. But yeah, I mean, you aren't getting people just like give you chips. I mean, and any tournament or just making like calls like they are scratching your head. Though I did see a lot of like players that were, I thought were good players and just like felt like, you know, they need a mass, a big stack and either they doubled up or they lost all their chips where I didn't think they had to do it in that spot with the hand that they held in these tournaments. And, and, and it doesn't even have to be the main event, any tournament, you know, when it gets down to the last table, it's all about aggression and the aggressive players are the ones that are there and, and the, the opponents are better and you'll see. And the, and the people who are weaker, the better players are going to recognize that and they're going to be attacked. It's going to be like shark in a water. It's going to be like, there's chum in the water and they're peeping in there. Like when I see a bad player get chips and I know the other players at the table, we all know, like when hits his big line, we're all coming after him or we're all trying to get into a <laughs> pot with him. So you could see it. It's like, who's going to get fool's gold in that spot, you know? So, but yeah, I mean, unfortunately the cream does rise to the top in these tournaments, you know, but like day one, you definitely see the most atrocious play. Unfortunately, I had a really bad table draw, but I mean, I had two women on me on day one that were calling down with hands. They shouldn't have been calling with, and they were getting lucky. And I remember sitting like a dinner break and like, they had all the chips, and I'm looking at these guys, and I'm like, "This, you guys are real fools." I go, "Look at this. These two people had all the chips, but unfortunately, they gave all those chips back to everybody." So, but yeah, I mean, it does truly get harder. I think on on day one, but you know, for me, if I when I had the chips, I didn't think it was difficult because I was able to do the things I wanted to do. I was able to put the pressure on those players. It really gets tough when you're short or you're battling 20, 30, 40 big blinds and you're playing against these big stacks. You just can't, you know, every chip means a lot. So you really got to kind of play kind of fit or fold, so to speak. And then some one time in a while, you know, people give you credit. I mean, I remember times I would raise with nine, eight and, you know, an ace would flop and I would represent that ace and they would fold. And, you know, sometimes you got to be aware of your image and you got to know the, the player type you're up against and you can steal a lot. And I did a lot of that to keep afloat. Well, you did, well, you did, you did a, a lot, did a lot. And, and you got late into the tournament, tournament and you're, and you're, you're well prepared, prepared for, next, for year. next year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 
I mean, again, you know, when I play in this tournament, I just want to play well and see where it leads me in any tournament. And, you know, I just want to keep making mistakes. And like even these hand histories, like the advice that you gave to me, I appreciate it. I'm going to look at that and I'm the type of a player. I'll read this and I'm going to do it over and over ingrained in my mind. And I will take it and make me better for next time. And even in the past, Chris, the stuff, the conversations we have, it's you're one of the reasons why I did. I got here. I, I, I'm really telling you that. I mean, there's not only you, but a lot of other people in my local community, which uh, there's just too many to list that have helped me with my game. And this is the reason why. And, you know, it's not just because, you know, I got lucky in this tournament. I mean, I would say the only time I got lucky was with that, uh, that straight. But, you know, if you put the effort into this game and I do put the effort, I mean, I spend quality time studying this game, reviewing the hand. You put it, you can get better. And I'm living proof of it. And I'm not a professional, but, you know, I've proved that I could play with players, their caliber. I mean, I made final tables and I'm like, you know, Hey, I keep getting here. And I don't think that's a coincidence, unfortunately. You know what I mean? Right, right. I just wish I could play more, you know, a Borgata series comes out. I could play one event or two events will allow me to do that. I mean, one day I would love just to like play the whole entire series. But then again, you want to know something when I'm done with poker, I'm like ready to get the hell out of here. And I need like two or three days and then I'm back on the grind again. <laughs> Well, well, I, 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 I don't know how that feels. You know, you're an inspiration. You're an inspiration. Uh, that seems that like seems a great, great spot to, to end, end our interview. interview. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you, and, and uh, we will include the information for the league or whatever else whatever you want to give me. I'll put it on the site. Yeah, site. yeah well, I have my website, uglytuna.net, and then you can – there's a link in there for, like, my satellite series or even for my local home games if – if you live in the New York area, Westchester County or Manhattan area or Connecticut area or, or even North New Jersey area, we more than love to happy to get part of a community. I mean, we have a really great community. I'm very hands-on. I'm very passionate. I just don't care about my success. I'm a fanboy for you. And when my friends go in, even on my Facebook, I'm like, we're all rooting for each other. It's a nice little community. And um, it's all about, you know, just supporting each other and, and, to have a, a go through an experience. What I went through, I would love for any aspiring player to go through what I went through. Well, I well, couldn't have been, put it better myself. Better myself. Mm -hmm. uh, thank uh, you, thank Greg. You. We're going to sign off now. And uh, thank you for listening to the Poker Zoo. All right. Take care. Thank you indeed for tuning in to the Poker Zoo. You can find us at persuadio.nl. There's a comment section under each of the episodes in the blog posts. Feel free to leave a comment, question you might have about the show, people you'd like to see us interview, etc. Zoo Hotline is 410-775-6224, 410-775-6224. Any questions you might have or comments that you would like aired on the show, leave them there. And we'll see you next time.